Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that has agreed for talking to continue, because otherwise this would be a really boring show to listen to. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week, as the Royal Navy has put four gunboats on standby in case a no-deal means they have to protect British fishing waters, I ask, wouldn't fish be much safer in tanks? The Brexit process still has legs, according to a UK government source, though there is no clarifying if they also have a head or are just running around aimlessly bleeding out until a pitiful death. That's just one of the many metaphors that has been hashed out this past week, another being that trade talks will go the extra mile, which isn't helpful when they've already been driven into the ground. But really, in the words of old Bill Shakespeare, I've had the vaccine. No, sorry, I mean the other one from the past days. It is all much ado about nothing, and such is the Christmas tradition that really the past few weeks have just been showing repeats because there's a lack of new content or imagination from everyone. Prime Minister and giant fart putty pot Boris Johnson started the week insisting that Sweet Reason would get the UK a good deal, making it sound like that was his character name and he might don a wig and some eyelashes and try his very best to charm the EU. But after a meal with President of the EU Commission and amalgamation of Narnia characters Ursula von der Leyen, the reports were that the two sides were still far apart with large gaps, something that was meant to sound like it was bad, but in 2020 just seemed like the only way for people to meet now and maybe for safety they should have also been in the park. It is hard to believe that having dinner with Boris Johnson might lead anyone to give him what he wants, as spending an hour while he just shows he can do gargling noises with his drink, make a napkin into a penis shape and tell that same one anecdote about Jaws would make even the most stoic of us do whatever you could to make sure you'd never have to see him ever again. Instead, it was just agreed that talks would, like this year, go on for much longer than anyone's happy with. They'll probably continue right up to the 31st of December, with a decision made as people ironically belt out about old acquaintances they shouldn't forget, and as businesses scrabble to work out how to begin the new year when suffering from a four-year hangover that's left them with absolutely no clue where they've woken up. An Australian-style deal would be wonderful for the UK, said Johnson, no doubt thinking that flip-flopping is appropriate when promoting a trade deal from a country with a hotter climate. 
Of course, they call them thongs in Australia, which also works, as never before has a country bared its ass in such an obvious way as we have. The Australian-style deal's so good that even former Australian Prime Minister and how you'd cast the part in a low-budget daytime TV show, Malcolm Turnbull, said that we shouldn't really want it because it's not very good. What's the opposite of a seal of approval? A walrus of rejection? A sea cow of despair? Why would it be wonderful for us, then, if even Malcolm Turnbull says it would be shit? Well, according to Boris Johnson, it means we'll be able to do what we want from January the 1st. You know, like, yeah, become a tax haven and watch as people fight each other for food. Freedom! Actually, according to the business secretary and AWOL Easter Island head, Alok Sharma, you will still be able to buy food if there is a no deal, though he didn't specify how many wheelbarrows of cash you'll need or if anything will be available other than potatoes. Culture secretary and personification of a failed immune system, Oliver Dowden, also insisted the country would survive a no deal. What is it that has made Conservative MPs over the last four years assume that everyone will be on board with their ideas if they can reassure us we'll just get to live in the biggest version of Bear Grylls the island yet, as though it's not just Conservatives that enjoy the notion of people going days without anything to eat? I'm certain under this lot that they'd even make the Lord of the Flies a peerage position and give it to one of their mates. Brits have been told not to stockpile, which works as well as telling someone to stay very still as they have a wasp in their hair. And businesses have been subject to a brand new government campaign called, tactfully, Time is Running Out. There's nothing more galling than being told to hurry up and sort it out by the people who've spent four years saying they'll be there in a minute, but they're just finishing off their game while you've been standing at the door jacket on tapping at your watch the whole time. It is safe to say that if you just think of what the worst possible thing to do in any scenario would be, that will be what the government opt for, with all the social awareness of a brick thrown through a window with a note saying fuck off attached. So while haranguing businesses for not being ready for regulations that don't exist, the government has also readied four Navy gunboats to patrol the country's fishing waters that we don't eat any of the fish from. With 75% of our fish sold to the EU, this plan only makes sense if the boats threaten European fishermen at gunpoint to still take our herring or else. The government couldn't give a fuck about anyone in care homes, but fish now have machine gun security. Then again, I guess many of the Conservatives have less in common with British people than they do cold-blooded slimy creatures with very short memories. The EU's preparations for a no-deal are a tad more courteous than just insisting we'll get shot if we try to fish snatch. Instead, they do things like give UK lorries six months' access to the European Union as long as the UK did the same for them, which they won't, and so maybe lorry drivers will have to fill in the gaps themselves, forming a relay system across the channel where a trade-based Sharon would have to ferry a raft between them, dodging gunboats to safely transport some brie to a black market Waitrose dealer. Meanwhile, according to stunt cadaver Michael Gove, Northern Ireland will now get the best of both worlds, though he didn't say which worlds those are, and there's a high chance the small prince says the underworld and that one from Star Wars that's made of lava. A no deal is likely, but also with talks continuing, it's not. And as the Prime Minister said, where there's life, there's hope, which must be wise trying his best to stamp both of those things out. The one plus side of all of this, of course, is that with EU talks going on over Christmas, hopefully it will ruin any chance Johnson has of a Caribbean holiday paid for by a lobbyist, and that sort of schadenfreude could keep us all going till January. Maybe the European Union are hoping that on Christmas Eve, Johnson will be visited by three ghosts who will show him that things were shit, are shit now, but also could be more shit and he'll have to change his mind. Or more likely, he'll just keep badgering the ghost of Christmas future to show him what various women look like now they're all grown up. I know Scrooge was visited by four ghosts, by the way, but Marley was Scrooge's pal, and if Johnson was visited by a friend who's dead, or at least dead inside, he'd probably just give them a contract to supply PPE. 
It's not just Brexit talks that are being dragged out forever by the government, but also the coronavirus. Maybe because they've realised that as soon as the pandemic is over, everyone will realise that the cabinet is shit at a whole lot of other things as well. The capital has gone into tier three weeks later than it should have, though that might be due to London waiting. The tier system was meant to be reviewed on the 16th of December, but the health secretary and scrapped peanuts character Matt Hancock said it had to be brought forward for London, Essex and parts of Hertfordshire due to a variant of the coronavirus which spreads even faster. Typical, the South always gets new releases first and at a higher cost for everyone. Hancock said the news on Covid is not good and that they need to act fast, just you know give it a day or so and only then it'll only be for a few days and before you know it you can go cough on your mum again for Christmas. Germany, the Netherlands and Italy are going full lockdown for Christmas to curb the massive second wave rise that they're having but it seems in this country the government's opting instead just to keep going with the regional tiers that are working so well they'll have to keep changing them before no doubt announcing on Christmas Eve that actually you'd better all stay indoors because the virus has now learned to mutate so it works tenfold if you say any festive related words and has a rapid effect on anyone who's just eaten stuffing. January will probably be another nationwide lockdown, but if you start as you mean to go on, what better way to ready us for the first post-Brexit year than by having the entire country grind to a halt because we refuse to listen to everyone else in Europe? Schools have already been closing early in the South, even though the government are only allowing ones in England to close a day earlier than planned because the virus balks at the idea of a long weekend, obviously. So everyone, the extra day would give teachers and pupils six days before Christmas Day. And with the government recommending that you need 10 days to self-isolate, how many days will that mean everyone misses seeing their family by? That's right, four. Well done. Most schools would like to break up a week early, but the government say it would affect underprivileged children because, you know, it's not fair if they don't have the same chances of getting the virus like everyone else. Plus, I suppose the Conservatives could think of nothing that would ruin their own Christmas more, like having to help feed children for a whole extra week. Can you imagine? Ugh. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation found that two million children are being pushed into extreme poverty by the pandemic, but the government just responded to this report by saying that they are making sure every child gets the best start in life, which I think is code for them saying they don't care once they stop being babies. Why on earth do they think any students will miss any learning in the last week of school before Christmas? If anything, it's much easier them all watching Christmas films via Zoom at home than a teacher having to wheel out their big telly and work out just where the SCART cable connects to the VHS player. They won't have to do a nativity play, which is great as it'd be even more boring in 2020 where Joseph can't attend the birth, the three wise men have to do FaceTime and all the gifts a hand sanitizer, loo roll and a sourdough starter sent by Amazon Prime. School minister and Crime Watch mugshot Nick Gibb wrote a threatening letter to a school in Hertfordshire saying that if they closed early, he'd direct their board of trustees to keep the school gates open and had the power to do so under the Coronavirus Act. If he could also force them to keep the doors and windows open, though, it'd help ventilate the area, plus provide more ways for the kids to escape before their parents drive straight into the playground and whisk them off home. All private and independent schools have already broken up, but more fool them, as now all their families have paid thousands just have to neglect them back at home instead. Wales have already closed all their schools and are warning that a post-Christmas lockdown is very likely unless they succeed in turning the tide of the virus, which for a country that's regularly flooded, I'm not sure that's a great analogy. Vaccinations are now being rolled out around the country, though, with the second ever person to get one being a man called William Shakespeare, though I heard it was actually Christopher Marlowe and the other guy took all the credit. Groups of GPs, also known as a referral, will start inoculating patients in vaccination hubs and the NHS is recruiting 30,000 volunteers to get trained to give jabs. If this is what staff shortages are pushing the healthcare system to do, at least work with social care and the justice system and why not help rehabilitate dealers who are good at injections by recruiting them as well as gang members who have absolutely no problems with stabbing old people.
In other news, the all-parliamentary group for Dark Skies, who sound like some sort of secret spy contingency, are calling for the government to designate a minister of the Dark Sky, who I hope would be dressed like either Batman or Spawn and only appear when signalled. The minister would be in charge of regulating excess lighting, and policy recommendations include to dim human illumination, which I think the government have already managed by putting some of the dimmest humans possible in the spotlight. Alok Sharma, who as well as being business secretary, is now in charge of the climate change talks next year, has said that world leaders are failing to show the necessary level of ambition when it comes to tackling climate change, before he then voted through a taxation bill that will give the most polluting companies in the UK between 30 to £300 million off tax payments with absolutely no strings attached. It's very hard not to wonder if he thinks making progress on climate change just involves having it happen even faster. MPs will not be getting their pay rise this year as the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority said it would not reflect the reality of the pandemic. No, but also to do that, you'd need to make a lot of them redundant, give a load of them no financial support at all and tell them they're just going to have to retrain. Police have dropped the investigation into the Conservative MP accused of rape, saying claims did not meet the evidential test. Apropos of nothing, Conservative MP and Billy Bunter cosplay act Marc Francois has reappeared after months of mysterious disappearance, which is funny as he's usually someone who doesn't care for evidence when making decisions. The Home Secretary and woman who only gets stronger when children cry, Pretty Patel, has announced that more money will be given to victims of the Windrush scandal, with the minimum payment now going from 250 quid for ruining their entire lives to £10,000. Patel said it was her mission to correct the wrongs of the past, so I can assume that by still deporting people who she shouldn't be, she's just trying to make sure she's still got something to do in several years' time. And finally, former Labour leader and car boot Santa Jeremy Corbyn has announced he is starting a global social justice organisation called the Project for Peace and Justice. A totally futile affair because he should have called it the Project for Peace and Equality and he'd have gained millions in funding from the government based on its initials alone. Meanwhile, current Labour leader and ice scoop Keir Starmer failed to even question a white supremacist caller to an LBC radio show he was on, even as she mentioned the great replacement theory that suggests white people are becoming a minority. Which isn't true, but if it was, it's because of racists like that that makes no one want to breed with them ever again, so hopefully they'll die out. Then again, Starmer did abstain from dealing with that comment, so maybe I'm the idiot, and actually he's providing an effective forensic opposition or challenging unconscious bias by being mostly unconscious about it or something. And just before the Electoral College announced, I mean, they haven't yet, but I'm not going to stay up to hear it. And just before the Electoral College announced that they've chosen him as president, Time magazine announced both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as their person of the year, which either means black women in America continue to be invisible to the media or they are indeed the very same person. And Biden is just a Halloween costume of an old man worn by Harris. There was controversy that US President and heat miser Donald Trump was in the shortlist for Time Person of the Year too, but it does make sense as he has a really big face and two small hands. Hey, seasonings greetings, which is when I throw salt and pepper at you. Um, do you feel Christmassy? I do, but only in that I don't want to do anything except sit very still and eat cheese. I think that's being festive. I mean, that's basically all Christmas is about, isn't it? Um, as you can probably hear, what I was going to say is you probably hear, but I don't think I sound as coldy as I am. I am full of a, I am full of a cold uh, that my daughter has very graciously brought back from her nursery. It's the season of giving, after all. Um, and so I was going to do a long rambly bit this week about all the lovely live gigs that I've just done this weekend in venues that are now going to have to close uh, next weekend uh, thanks to London being in tier 3 um, and I had lovely gigs thank you to the Watford Palace um, and 
all the people in Walthamstow and all these lovely things that now can't happen ever again. Um, I was going to talk about that, uh, but the effects of my lemsip are running out and my capacity to talk without just sneezing uh, is getting limited. Um, it's not quite what I plan to do for the final show of the year, but I guess what is more 2020 than absolutely nothing going to plan? Um, also, this episode is quite long anyway, due to the very, very excellent interview that I'm excited for you to hear. Um, but again, what is more 2020 than something going on longer than you had expected? If anything, this podcast is the perfect way to finish this year's run. Uh, you're very welcome. It is the most 2020 podcast yet. Um, so before I sign off for a few weeks so I can pretend to enjoy uh, the festive season, even though it is just more sitting at home, eating and spending hours scrolling through Netflix, trying to remember what it was like having uh, any sort of job. Um, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for being excellent, Parpol Brods, uh, through what we can all agree has been a bullshit year um now you know i'm not one for sincere moments of gratitude but having this podcast to do and knowing that you lot out there actually listen to it nay even laugh at it occasionally um it's really helped me get through uh well all of the live comedy dying um not to mention also the relentless dealing with a toddler sorry agent who um her new thing is uh, checking when the radiators are on uh, she then pulls off her trousers and pants sticks her bottom right on the radiator and shouts hot bum hot bum this is my life now this this is what i deal with on a daily basis um but seriously uh, you've helped me um uh, so thank you for for still listening to this this show that will just it's gonna go on forever um and all of you who kindly donated genuinely uh made me able to pay rent a few times um so thank you for that too um, and I hope that this show has helped you even if it's just as you see it pop up on your phone and you think oh shit I must remember to unsubscribe um, and in those few seconds you've forgotten about the virus and it's made you feel better so you're welcome even if it's just that so a uh, big weekly thanks though to Christina, James and Claire for the Kofi donations which is so very kind of you thank you and should you wish to donate uh, to this show over this holiday period um, then you can do that at the ko-fi.com forward slash bro or give yourself the Christmas gift of joining the Patreon where I add absolutely zero extra content because I am very lazy um, and that is at patreon.com forward slash bro or via the ACAST supporter button that I'm still I'm still uncertain how it works I think uh, there's a woman that pops up and talks about it at the beginning of the show somewhere isn't there I don't know I don't really understand it but have a look try and find out it'd be like a sort of escape room uh, treat for you over Christmas when there's nothing else to do um, or you know review the show or just tell people or maybe just maybe have a rest for a few weeks if you can and tell someone that you know and love that you like their hair or the way they say the word discombobulate or just how magical it is when they float through the walls and stare at you from the corner of your room in the middle of the night whatever it is just let them know I'll probably be bringing this show uh, back in January to report on Brexit things, um, but early January is also my birthday, so I might wait till after that as I am turning special old age. Oh yes, big special old age, um, and I will want to wallow in lockdown despair uh, in order to celebrate. Um, there will no doubt be some parpol bonuses over the next few weeks, and I'm sure Nostradamus will make his annual appearance for the new year too, so don't worry, I'm not completely abandoning you over the festive period. Um, I mean, let's face it, it wasn't even that much news to talk about on this week's show, apart from yet more Brexit and yet more coronavirus. So I think once Parliament is done at the end of this week, uh, there's not enough for a full episode. And I just I haven't. My brain is full of snot. Um, also, on a not this podcast thing, um, my pal Sarah Fox, who is a work coach for people in the arts and creative places, and she's brilliant. Um, she has started a lovely podcast called Do Good and Do Well, where she talks to a whole load of fascinating people um, about how it is that they keep 
doing what they do even when they consider giving it up um, and at some point I'm also going to be on an episode and I ruin it because uh, we talk about what I do when I consider giving it up or when coronavirus makes you give up sort of um, I'll pop all the links into the podcast blurb so do like it and subscribe to it and have a listen and don't forget that I have a supposedly live podcast of this show at the Leicester Comedy Festival next year on the 6th of February at 2pm uh, and if it doesn't happen in a real place it's probably not going to happen in a real place is it uh, then it'll be live online all virtual and shit so if you buy a ticket you'll get to see something promise you'll get to see something that is actually happening somewhere um right so I shall wish you all uh, a merry having a goddamn fucking break uh, at the end of the show. But for now, on this week's, I have a chat with the politics editor at Galden magazine, Moya Lothian-McLean, about, well, loads of things, and she's properly brilliant. Um, plus, it wouldn't be Christmas without a little Brexit fallout, would it? I mean, it would. And in fact, it'd probably be a much better one. But I've done it anyway, and you can't stop me. Festive lols! <laughs> It is nearly, finally, oh God, finally, the end of the year that has felt like three years in one. And that means that for this here political comedy podcast, it's time for an end of year review. Sure, that could just be a long groan that's too tired to be a scream, because how else to describe a year that started with many places actually on fire and that turned out to be the least bad thing that happened? If you'd written this year as a film script and handed it to Roland Emmerich, he'd have shouted, fuck that, it's too unrealistic. However, you have heard my thoughts throughout the year and despite them somehow kept on listening to this here show. So I thought it best that for the interview this week, I got someone else to give me their probably better informed view on it all. Just who has been forgotten this year and dare I even risk asking it, will next year be any better? And luckily to discuss all these issues is Moya Lothian-McLean, the recently appointed new politics editor at the amazing Galden magazine, a publication that is committed to sharing perspectives from women and non-binary people of colour. Uh, Moya is a fantastic journalist and writer who specialises in focusing on underrepresented voices and underreported stories. And I've really, really enjoyed several pieces that she's written over the last couple of years. Uh, and I was properly chuffed that she was happy to have a chat. Uh, this is a long one, um, but there's a reason for that. It's because it's a good one and there was nothing I could cut out. So I thought it was all great um, and Moya not only made some amazing suggestions for just where on earth we go from here from 2020 um, but she also manages to expose my secret of being in the pockets of big Covid. Uh, this is a good thought provoking um, and grounded chat and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I uh, did having it. Here is Moya. Hi Moya, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I thought we'd start, this is the, the last chat I'm going to have with someone uh, this year for the podcast, and I, I, I thought we'd, we're at the end of 2020, which has been one hell of a year for absolutely everyone, uh, nearly fucking ended, thank fuck. But I thought we'd start by, say back in March, um, you wrote a brilliant piece for Galden that I really enjoyed about how coronavirus has shown the benefits of left-wing ideas, um, and I think you sort of mentioned it, how many of the concerted policies were things that were in the Labour manifesto, which we even see in the last couple of weeks we've had the green industrial revolution which was exactly what it was called in the labor manifesto as well we're now at the end of the year finally do you think the benefits of, of left-wing ideas are even more evident uh, is it even more obvious that that's where we need to go um or not and and do you think just let's be a bit hopeful for a minute do you think anyone is going to be affected by this in the future and, and run with it oh oh what a wide-ranging question um, I think it's the, the answer is twofold in that the benefits of the left-wing ideas are very clear, but the left-wing itself is more alienated from the political mainstream than ever. So the ideas that the left have are fantastic, but when they're actually attached to the left figures, they're seen as completely toxic, which is a 
the weirdest kind of like catch 22 to be in um going on to the ideas themselves so obviously we had the furlough scheme we had the rent freeze we've had a huge reliance on the nhs we've realized how important that is especially when you look at countries with private healthcare systems um you know we had benefits increased by a whole 20 pounds a week um but the point was the tories had to make concessions and they uh, to save the country from you know complete ruin or at least in the short term because we don't know what's coming around the corner they turned to left-wing ideas and as you say you know last week we literally saw them completely nick the green industrial revolution wholesale which is both a brilliant thing because we want a green industrial revolution but it's a terrible thing because it should be something that you know, the major left-wing party in the country, Labour, are pushing and championing and being seen as the architects of, rather than being so complacent that the Tories are able to nick it from under their noses and repackage it as their own ideas. But I think what we've seen most of all is like, you know, employment now in the UK stands at 4.89%, I think it is. And young people are disproportionately affected by that. I think it's 14.6% of 16 to 24 year olds are unemployed right now that's because of the coronavirus crisis and they are the people who are also funnily enough most invested in left-wing ideas i think there was a fantastic um electoral post post-electoral analysis map last year that came out that said if 16 24 years of voting it would just still be red just solidly um so i think both the pandemic has shown that yeah i i, I mean i believe in a bigger state i believe in you know, there being a safety net and a foundation that people can build off. I don't think people can make something out of nothing. So I believe that left-wing ideas that sort of like, you know, benefits the healthcare system, um, having rent caps, things that make your life easier, and in my opinion, make the economy go around, are just common sense. I think the pandemic has shown many people that those things are needed, especially in cases of crisis, but also has exposed the fault lines. The problem is that we're so entrenched now in this country in these, you know, separate political positions, people might see left-wing ideas, but they will repackage them completely as something new. Or they will, or what we've also seen, which is quite worrying to me, is that the ideas that should be, you know, we are building a strong welfare state to support the citizens of this country, instead it turns to, we need to give everything to charity. Charity is going to save us. And, you know, private charitable giving is not going to save us. But what I've seen this year is a massive drive of like, community and the left-wing ideas of community but these have been turned into charity so it's like support our food banks we shouldn't have to need food banks we could get rid of the food banks in the first place so it's been this weird it's been a very weird year when you've seen left-wing ideas come out and they're like the the political argument for them has got ever stronger and yet the resistance has got stronger too in a weird way it's almost like we're at the brink and people just, it shows how how strong I think the brainworms of late stage capitalism are in that we still resist and we still think, you know, private spending and private um, charitable giving is going to get us out of this mess and help everyone out. We think paternalism is going to work and it's not. What we need is to give everyone sort of equal opportunity um, and disproportionately we've seen who's been affected by the failure to adopt left-wing ideas en masse but the little ones that did come in like the furlough look how successful that was for a while we couldn't continue it forever obviously but it really it saved a hell of a lot more jobs than it would have otherwise and it sold a hell of a lot more families it gave a lifeline at a time when we really needed it so that was that was a positive i think the dial is moving on policy but the problem is the conservatives are managing to adopt these left-wing policies and repurpose them as Tory policies and also with a nationalistic bent 
which is <laughs> exactly what we didn't want to happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's something they're very good at. In that, you know, the, the, for example, their their national living wage, or they call it living wage, and it's not the national living wage, and people can't live off it. It's simply the name. So everyone goes, "Hooray, you've done a living wage," but it isn't at all. And, and they're regularly pushing forward proposals that are, you know, like what was in the Labour manifesto, but not good enough or not quite there. The Green Industrial Revolution, for example, doesn't include several of the things that Labour had included in theirs. And and I wonder. Do, is, is that what's most damaging to kind of left-wing policies? Because we had, and I mean, I know this is a very different issue really in a way, but for example, at Millwall uh, supporters last weekend claimed that they were booing players of taking the knee, uh, not because they were being racist, but because of Marxism. And the, the racism issue we'll come to in a bit, but the, the idea that Marxism is so far left, when actually a lot of Marxism would be supporting a society, allowing workers' benefits. Have we, has, do you think there's now just this distorted view of what left-wing politics actually is because supposedly the government is doing all the things we need even if if they're not mm. yeah i think so i think it's also like massively to do with the cultural they've managed to wage which is genius in and horrible and <laughs> that they've take what they do is like as you say they take these left-wing ideas they don't quite do them and then when actual left-wing ideas come up they seem really radical they've managed to push the like overton window of what is acceptable central centrist politics which is the thing that everyone thinks that everyone wants when actually people really want social democracy um centrist politics um so the the current government are so right-wing but they've also normalized it to the degree that anything even mildly centrist seems massively left-wing so then when you get these left-wing ideas they're like this is marxism and they've managed to make the word marxism and everything that goes with it into this like dirty swear swear word it's like saying cunt or something you know like marxism and it's as soon as you attach to that it doesn't matter what's going to happen then people will have that knee-jerk response of like oh one because i don't think a lot of people know what marxism actually is it's just become a bias become a byword it's like language evolves you know what marxism actually means is no longer what marxism actually means it's 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 synonymous for other things um and they've they do this quite successfully with a lot of ideas like as you say with the millwall incident they reframed what blm is so BLM stops being a wide, non-centralised political movement that's just about racial equality into being a specific political movement organised by shadowy actors to, I don't know, do what? Like, it doesn't even, they don't even say. They just kind of, it's about vague fear and they classically play on that idea of, you know, the fear of the unknown. What we don't know is what scares us. And I think that's what they've done with left-wing ideas. They're like, yeah, they all sound good, but we don't know what's going to happen. You know what the misery is when you pick the Tories and that known misery for people, it seems a lot more safe. They seem to always go for it. They know they know how bad it's going to get, but they don't. That's the thing. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And every time they've convinced the public and they've convinced the citizens of the UK that this unknown left wing kind of like these policies are things that, yeah, they could go well, but they also could go so badly they could ruin everything for you. I was talking to a family member who... Um, is what I would call classically in the middle. Like she's not, she's not someone who's classically Tory. I think she's very Tory in the past. She's also definitely not Labour. She's someone who I would say is classic working class, believes in what like community and goodness. So she believes in building up the people around her and she's very like, I work hard on my life, et cetera. And she's, I said to her, you know, what have Labour, like, why would you, why would you ever vote for Tories? Like, what have they done for you? And she's like, well, I'll just say that Labour, no Labour government has ever made me better off. And it's the idea that like, you can't vote in a Labour government who can promise certain things because there's no, there's the fear of like what it, they could do for you. They could make you worse off. It's like, she's only experienced, I think, one Labour government properly 
which was Tony Blair's. And do they really count? Mm, we're not sure. Um, but it's that thing. It's they don't. This this and now the door is and because that we have no memory of what a Labour government could do, really, like a powered up socialist Labour government could do. Um, people are just scared of it, and Labour themselves play into this by you know. The current Labour leadership, I think, in my opinion, just panders the Tories have, have taken a sort of like very passive opposition stance where they're not going to um, oppose anything. So they can't be seen to fight, be fighting for something. There's nothing to fight for. So the Tories have simultaneously branded all left wing ideas as, you know, this scary thing that's going to come in and um, take away everything you already have and not give you anything else. And on the other hand, you've got Labour not actually putting any forward any new ideas or putting anything fresh forward that people can believe in so you look at 2017 and the reason we got such a good result in the 2017 election i'm i'm talking a lot about labor here i don't think politics is all organized around parliamentary parties but speaking specifically on them um you look at the 2017 election and the reason one of the reasons i think we got such a good result is that there was something to believe in for the first time it's like look at these beautiful fresh policies and this is exactly what they're going to do for you and yours and this is how they're going to make everything better and it was like this hopeful feeling of optimism um Whereas the Tories take left-wing policies and they stick them through a sort of like meat grinder and they come out on the other end with all this horrible, it's almost like chlorinated chicken. They chlorinate their chicken, they chlorinate these left-wing policies until they come out in this distorted, bloated version of what they originally were. But people still eat it because it's on offer and it's there and they know what's in it more. I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, they've, they've bought into this Kool-Aid idea and it's horrible to see people just succumbing to the misery but I think Britain as a country is a very miserable country to its core and I think we've been conditioned to be miserable and we always pick misery over hope hope kills you whereas misery it kills you too <laughs> at least you know what to expect well, I, I do gay. always wonder I always think that sometimes <laughs> when I look at uh, electoral results I think are people worried they're gonna have nothing to complain about they're like if we vote for this and oh we'll have to have friendly conversations what are we gonna grumble about at the bus stop you know it's, it's almost like a sort of self-torture there's like a, a, a sort of sadomasochism to it sometimes um I, I wondered if you thought like you know because obviously there isn't there isn't really left-wing voice in in the media and there isn't really left-wing voice in politics now what is how do you then change that narrative? Do we do, do left wing policies, left wing policies become more, even more left wing? So when the Tories nick them, <laughs> we're even closer to pull it back, or or is it that we stop using the term left wing and we rebrand it entirely? Like, like, what do you kind of think is the way forward? Because it seems, I mean, as you said, hope is that is the one thing we really need, but it, it seems very bleak right now. Oh, do what do we need to do to like the media? What do we need to do to left wing voices in the media to solve it? If I knew that. I would be um, very successful. <laughs> no, I think I th- I think it's. I mean, it's a massive question. A lot. Of, what's interesting is you look at the media landscape and the left wing voices in the media landscape right now, and you look at who's the prominent people, and they're either people who you know live under constant threat of um, you know far right people coming around to their house and doing something terrible to them, or they have moved towards engaging the mainstream to such a degree that the left wing disowns them like owen jones has started his own youtube channel and everyone's like why are you interviewing piers morgan on this this is not an alternative left wing channel it's those kind of things it's like i think so i think when you're i think the idea of left wing as a whole is also so fractured they can't agree i think the start would be to within the left wing ourselves sort out our factional disputes if we want to present a message of hope we first need to sort that out for ourselves I don't think anyone within the left as a wider thing agrees on what that hope should look like right now which is a problem you've got 
people like me who are further to the left and are fully like socialism now, you've got what they call the soft left and the moderates, which I'm sure if I provide a description, I'll get absolutely slated in the comments of this podcast because <laughs> no one can agree on what that is. <laughs> um, it's so, and everyone's fighting and you've got this new leadership within the parliamentary left, aka Labour, who has proved contentious because people see it moving as more to like a Blairite um, sort of centre left situation. And that is taking up all our energy. So there's no way to provide hope because none of us have any direction. We don't know what, whether what we're doing, what we're fighting for. And I think a lot of the younger activists like me, we, we came of age in the sort of Corbyn era. We cut our teeth in the Corbyn era. Like I'm 25. Um, so we've kind of, a lot of us, I don't mean all of us, I know there's a lot of people who do a lot of grassroots stuff, but a lot of us started off with investment in the Parliamentary Labour Party and now have to sort of work backwards and go back to community action and learn how to do that and learn how to start things from the ground. And I think within the pandemic as well, it's been difficult for a lot of us to find our bearings. So right now we're sort of flailing in every direction. I think that's why it's hard to get a left-wing voice that provides hope or whatever. The Tories are united and the right-wingers are more united because they are coalesced around this message of, I don't want to say hatred, but some of it is hatred. They've got a very strong basic message, which is blame your neighbour who's brown or blame your poor neighbour. But you, if you're white and you're British... You're one of us and that's what matters. And their strong message is like, they just keep repeating that again. They've got these slogans, you know, take back control. Um, what was a Brexit means Brexit, all of that. They focus on these very small slogans, which have this underlying nastiness and this underlying, you know, as we say, it sucks the hope out of the room. Whereas the left, it's a much harder concept to boil down of like, your life could get better because people just don't believe it. They don't believe that their lives could get better. Um, but yeah, if we want to be able to actually communicate that message with the efficiency we did in 2017, and even better, because it'd be nice to win an election, um, we have to first sort it out amongst ourselves. We first have to understand how, you know, we can work with each other, because at the moment, I think the left is just so fractured. It's so it's upsetting to see. I don't agree with a lot of people who are in the left, but if the right can work together, work together so effectively that they, you know, they, they took what could have been a massive challenge, which is the Brexit party to the Tories, and they subsumed it in. And it works because of the hatred angle. And it works because they basically just went further right and were like, let's appeal to nationalism. Yeah, let's do that. But those tactics of like boiling this message down and, you know, fight, fixing on this common common goal, then the right are much better at it than us. Whereas the left forever have been like, we get very bogged down into, you know, we're going to do Marxism or we're going to do this. We're going to do some mild social democracy. Um, but I also, th- I do also do quite blame the left, the right of the left for doing that because they love unity only when they're in charge. They do not like unity when the other side's in charge. But yeah, that's, 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 I think why there's no um, sort of like within the media as well, fixed left idea because we're all sniping each other as much as we're sniping at the other side. So it's difficult to actually focus on one message of hope. Yeah, it's it's that thing of the, the right wing also just want to win regardless, whereas the left wing rule about, well, what do you think? And what do you think? Oh, well, I don't agree with that. It's like, no, we need a three-word slogan and just get going, people. And that's, <laughs> we, just, we just need one three-word slogan, we'll be fine. Um, it, it's um, this, this next question, I realise I, 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 this could sound a bit bleak, and I don't, well, it, it's 2020, everything sounds bleak, but I, um, I, I should say that I'm not pro-coronavirus when I'm asking you this, but I one of the things that the coronavirus has done that I 
is perhaps good. I've got to be careful saying this. I'm not pro-COVID, people. Um, Sounds like pro-COVID. It does sound like I'm working with the virus, doesn't it? Um, It it feels like it's been a catalyst for change in public opinion. We we talked about the left-wing ideas earlier, but also there's been a lot of campaigns that have come forward this year. Um, And and I wonder if you sort of feel like there is a silver lining to every crowd. Has it kind of unintentionally spotlighted systematic issues that would have been ignored if we if we hadn't had this um you know are there things that have come forward you know can we can we be grateful to the virus for a couple of things that sounds terrible i'm so sorry (laughs) thank you covid Uh, this is sponsored by Big COVID, by the way. (laughs) Absolutely, I'm absolutely in the pockets of Big COVID. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I think the thing that underpins this all is time. That what what I think a lot of people have said about this is COVID has given us time. It's given us time to be trapped in our own rooms. It's given us time to sit down. It's given us time to really hear what news is going on. COVID brought a pause to the rush of capitalism. And while that's obviously devastating for personal finances and the economy, even though I hate capitalism, it's the system we work within, it meant that the systematic problems that otherwise are just too much for us to take in while everything else is going on, were both exposed and we could focus on them. That's why COVID has been a catalyst for the, for the you know, the focus on things like racism within society, transphobia, um, just general inequalities in financial um, the north-south divide that's come up in a way that and people are listening do you think people would have been listened to Andy Burnham the way they were the last month or so if it was 2019 because I don't think they would not everyone would be tuning into the news not everyone would have been logged on in the same way COVID has given us focus and time so I think that yes it's ex- I th- actually that's a better way to put this so the other day there was a I think a piece in the Guardian which said you know a study has revealed that BLM um, has prompted more racism in the country. And when you actually read the report, it hasn't prompted more racism in the country. It's exposed the racism. So movements like that, of course, the ra- it said it heightened racial tension. That's it. BLM's heightened racial tension. Yes, because we're talking about it. It's the same way, you know, when you talk about an issue, it gets heightened. Um, just a trigger warning for anyone, I'm about to mention um, rape, but... Um, there was a there was an incident in Sweden a couple of years back where rape cases started going up and they couldn't understand why. And then they realised it's because they broadened the definition of what rape was. So more cases that were being reported were being um, put under this definition of rape. This, so as soon as you start, you know, focusing on something more, then yes, that tension is going to um, increase or that the incidents of it happen are going to increase. So yeah, I think I think people are now seeing this systematic. The systematic issues. I think it's interesting to see how far deeply it's gone down within my networks. A lot of people that I previously perhaps would have not thought would have highlighted these things have been really engaged, really switched on. It's just now about how do we stop that being co-opted by the right and made into like a cultural war issue? How do we make sure that the anger and, you know, the fury we feel doesn't get just normalized and smoothed out and turned into something that we accept because that's what can happen we get especially when you exist on the internet because a lot of this stuff and a lot of the things that are being raised they're being shared and disseminated and people are discussing them online and when you do that it's a fantastic way to collectively organize but it's also a very quick way to burn out and just get overwhelmed the flow of information is so much um, that you can easily just feel there's too much going on. You want to just like, you know, X out. 
and you just have to take breaks. Um, and we need to harness the anger and energy that we've seen throughout this year and keep it going. And we need to not make the these issues suddenly become something that's background noise because that's what they can be again. Like they were ignored once because people weren't talking about them and being able to focus on them. And next year when life gets back to normal, what's going to happen then? How do we keep this going? How do we make sure that, you know, the effect, the impact of COVID in making us listen doesn't go away? Because I think that's really key. And I don't have an answer for that. Like, I don't know how to make people focus. I, for one, will be in all the clubs for a very long time going out and dancing. And (laughs) (laughs) the first thing I'm doing is as soon as that vaccine is in my arm, I'm going to leave the house and I'm going to go to a very sweaty basement and I will dance there for several days. But it's, it's that thing. How do we, how are we going to balance that instant desire that we'll have to reclaim our sort of freedom and liberation within the means that are available to us? And, you know, balance that with wanting to just be out and forget all about this horrible year and this trauma. Because I think a reaction to the trauma of this year, and I'm going to call it trauma, because a lot of people have, you know, they've had they've had the emotional struggles, the mental health struggles, and this year's just upended every every sort of coping mechanism they knew. And a lot of reaction to that at first is to repress it. Like a lot of things that you do when you feel trauma initially is to repress that. And it only comes up again in a couple of years. So is it, I don't want something like Black Lives Matter. And I don't want something like, you know, focusing on massive inequalities that we've had this year to suddenly become part of that trauma response where we repress it and we don't want to talk about it because we're like, we've had a year of focusing. Now we need a year off of focusing because that just stops the momentum. Um, so it's, it's really difficult. COVID, yes, I agree overall in answer to your question that COVID, yeah, you know, thank you, COVID, for for letting us focus on this <laughs> systemic problems and these issues and giving people the, the space to be able to devote the energy. Because I don't think it was that people didn't care. I think it's they just didn't have the energy. It's very hard to care when, you know, you're trying to hold down a job, and you're trying to pay your rent. All this is going on now. People are still trying to hold down jobs and pay their rent. But in some cases, that option has been removed and they do have a bit more energy to give and people do want to help others. And that's something that's positive come out. There was a community sense that's come out. But I think, as I said before, everything is the ideas and like the political direction we have is so fractured. It's hard to put that into one place. And now what we need to do is channel that energy and keep it going. Do you think there's, there's much in the idea of taking it away from, from the internet? Because I think I really agree with what you said that the, the internet is so full on. And not only that, in, in that while it's very positive in that you can reach a lot of people, it also means that there are a lot of people that, that it reaches that perhaps it shouldn't or or perhaps, you know, are anonymous and choose to troll it because they can. And, and in a real life situation, that might not be the case. You know, is, is there something about, you know, next year when we're all not sat at our computers as much? Do we need to be taking these issues away from social media where they're inflamed to, to sometimes a sort of really silly degree or, or you know with the arguments taken in a silly direction is that is that a way forward perhaps to kind of bring it to people in actual meetings where we can actually see people again see i think i think that's dreaming the, it, yeah. <laughs> to meetings um I I think, yeah like people um i think the thing is that these meetings are happening already on some degrees. Like I know, I mean, they might be happening over Zoom, but they're happening. But I think what you say, yes, about we need to learn. I mean, we've had the internet for what now, 20 years? It was like 1998, 1999, something like that. We've had 20 years. By now we should be learning. And we've had things like Twitter and Instagram and these social networking platforms that have become publishing platforms and collective organizing platforms for since 2010. So about a decade about a decade of these platforms. And we should by now be able to know 
how to use them in a way that's like conducive (laughs) like actually actually useful for our causes and I think the key to that is and this is just my own private thoughts on this use them to spread the word and then log off the thing is they should be if you're using them in collective organizing use them for like you know you fundraising getting that but as soon as it becomes a site of debate to a degree log off we do not need to debate some of these issues with the people we're debating them with online because it's not only wearing out your energy in a space where it's not going to be seen by loads of people you want to reach. It's also making, they're reframing them and making them ridiculous. Like I don't want to sit there debating in a 20 word thread about the Sainsbury's advert featuring a black family. That is just not useful to my goals as a left winger. Like what is that going to do for anyone? What is that going to do for black families? Nothing. Like that's just, you're just Twitter chatting online, just chatting shit online. It's not useful. Um, so, for example, if I take, you know, a protest, this summer we saw how useful social networking sites were in both spreading the word about protesting, um, ensuring those who could go were able to go, um, collectively fundraising for things like masks, sanitizer, that they could be handed out in these protests, getting speakers, um, organise the equipment, amazing, telling people what's going to happen, great. Um, but for something like, you know, debating someone online about whether these protests should happen, how is that useful? It's not. What we need to focus on is the organising aspect and take it away from the debating aspect. The debating aspect can move to, you know, sometimes it is useful to have a big debate online or write an article or whatever, but I find more and more that Twitter is has become entrenched as a forum, especially in lockdown, that is pervaded by this sort of like anger and nastiness that a lot of us feel, which is, you know, we're online and we're really bored and there is an anger that keeps coming out in interactions. I find myself scrolling and thinking like that fucking stupid idiot like what a fucking idiot and I'm like someone's just tweeted about their socks it's ridiculous like the (laughs) level of (laughs) the level of the level of vitriol I find in myself because of lockdown and you have to recognize that and realize that this year Twitter has become something where someone can get cancelled for any second thing it's not it's no longer a platform that is conducive to having a productive discussion do that elsewhere do that on a zoom meeting do that on you know face to face do that even on clubhouse if you have an iphone 7 plus and an invite because it's very exclusive and you can't have it you have an android as i discovered um, so i do i think that um yeah social media we need to start thinking more carefully and more in a political sense i mean obviously if you're posting yourself it's go do that i love that but in a political sense we need to think more carefully and more intentionally how we're going to use it and uh, and before we start you know getting provoked by some someone with an egg avatar who's telling us that um blm is racist actually think why why do i need to engage in this what use is this i will say the thing that you know twitter's useful and i've already said this briefly but it's is for connecting with people and also finding those local activists and organizations and campaigns that you can link with. That's what it's useful for. So like as a, as a journalist, I use it a lot for finding like writers, but I also use it for finding people, grassroots campaigns that I want to keep an eye on that I want to just like connect with that. I want to just learn from their work because people post updates and things on Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. But as far as it goes, like I have a quality filter on my tweets and I also have a policy of like, if something if I post a tweet and I think it's getting too much of attention that I just don't want to, I just mute it. I don't need, I don't need to engage in discussions that aren't useful for furthering the cause and the values. And that doesn't mean I can't hear other opinions. I can admit when I'm wrong and I can hear people from other political spectrums where I'm not going to listen to Tories, but I'm talking about solely on the right here, on the left here. Um, But it doesn't mean not like listening to other people. I think Twitter is the enemy of listening to other people at this stage though. So 
find another way to engage with people and talk to them because actually this is an interesting story i was i was so clubhouse the app i mentioned this new sort of like voice app that um a lot of the young black community are using at the moment because it was originally i think a silicon valley like vc thing and it became it's become like chat rooms you can only use it, as i said if you have an iphone up um iphone 7 up operating system and it's not on android but anyway so they're having a lot of discussions on there and and someone was a lot of people saying that it's funny because they keep talking to people that they've blocked on twitter and having really good conversations and i think that kind of sort of sums it up it's like <laughs> twitter which is one of these primary organizing places and obviously there's other sites than twitter I, i'm referring to a lot because a lot of like political discourse revolves around it within like left circles i think that's one of the problems these there's the world's outside these sites and also these sites are now you know, they're very entrenched, they're very divisive. And again, the anger is pervading it. So people react very quickly and with knee jerk, there is no time to actually talk and really build something. It is a reactive site. It is not a building site. So yeah, I think to sum up the too long, didn't listen of what I just said. Um, it's Yeah, we need to, we need to start thinking more intentionally about how we're using social media and we should stop using it as a debating tool and a tool for explaining ourselves and start using it as a solely organizing tool and connecting tool and then take the work offline and bring it to the communities and bring it to the grassroots because um tweeting and making infographics is great but it's just the beginning hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Moya in a minute. But first, no, nothing has happened with Brexit yet. But something could be happening with Brexit soon, even if it's an agreement that nothing more will be happening for another 50 years as various different world leaders keep agreeing to postpone talks again and again until the UK is forever getting Brexit done and never having done it until no one remembers why it's happening anymore. And we celebrate every October 31st, also January 31st, whatever that July date was, and probably New Year's or something, with an effigy of Boris Johnson made with uncooked dough. And we repeatedly promise to do something with it and say it's oven ready, but no one ever actually gets round to it. So, uh, why a Brexit fallout bit this week then? Well, it's the last podcast of the year, isn't it? And what could be more in keeping with the spirit of the season than looking at some bollocks loads of people believe despite a complete lack of evidence before starting the year by giving up something you actually enjoyed. 
There is obviously a chance a deal will be struck before midnight on the 31st of December. There is also a chance it won't, but that doesn't mean a deal can't be struck later once we've run out of food and we're tired of eating each other. I have over the past four years of this podcast, bored you six billion trillion times with what a no deal would mean for the country and its varying degrees of hellstrom depending on if the government had bothered to stop our things at the time or not. And I've had loads and loads of brilliant guests who've also explained all of those things. And it would be easy to summarise all of that right here by just saying that no deal would mean fucked and then sort of gesturing with my arms at everything. And it would be. Uh, it would be fucked, with the exception of our 25 trade deals and our supposedly WTO rules to get us some exports and imports. However, the government just the other week also waved through changes to the Customs Safety and Security Procedures regulations that will breach WTO rules too, as will their new policies on state aid subsidies. Of course they did. So we could be out of the WTO fairly quickly as well. Basically, a no deal might mean that we'd all better grow crops in our gardens, or in my case, upstairs flat somewhere. I mean, parts of it are definitely damp enough for some mushrooms. And we might have to be become one of those historical reenactment theme parks where people only visit to come and see what it was like before humans discovered fire. Actually, I'm being a tad over the top there. Uh, fire is probably one thing that we'll have loads of due to a lack of health and safety regulations on electrical goods. So that's no deal. We might get a deal, of course, but if we do, it'll be a shit weak deal, aka a hard Brexit, if you like, with all possible options of a soft Brexit going stale and hardening under the last prime minister. It will ultimately make everyone worse off, destroy workers' rights, and everything will get more expensive. Just, you know, not as expensive. So hooray, win. And in this case, Brexiteers will be angry with Johnson as well. So it has the bonus of absolutely no one at all being happy with him. Which way is it going to go? Well, I haven't got a clue, but also uh, I've checked what some more intelligent people think and they don't have a clue either. So absolutely no one has a fucking clue. Whatever happens, though, a no deal, a shit deal, Boris Johnson insisting the last four years have never happened, he's never said any of it out loud. Whatever it is, some things will change on January the 1st and the UK will be officially out of the European Union. So what be those things that be changing? Well, get ready for Brexit. No, wait a few months. OK, get ready now. Oh, no, wait again. Oh, no, get ready for Brexit. Oh, wait, what, what are we ready for? Oh, no idea. It doesn't matter. But get ready. Here are some things that will change. Going on a holiday to Europe will mean you've got to have at least six months left on your passport, blue or otherwise. You'll have to have travel insurance with health cover because if you get ill, there's no covering your ass. Not just because those patient gowns always leave a bit for the bum. Uh, If you want to drive on the right side over there, which is obviously the wrong side though, then you'll need all sorts of new international driving permits and special cards from your insurance company, which you just know they're going to charge you for because they hate your guts. If you want to take your pet over to Europe so you've got at least one living thing over there that doesn't think you're a total prick, then that'll need permits from your vet four months before you go and there's a chance it'll cost more to call people from your phone as roaming charges might also return. And this is all assuming that you can go to the EU at all after January the 1st, as Britain will no longer be exempt from the COVID safety restrictions prohibiting travel to many of the European countries. People in Northern Ireland uh, will be exempt though, so they should totally go over loads to Malaga and just tell everyone there that no one likes chips or alcohol anymore and ruin it for when English people go visit again. Ha <laughs> ha. If you're flying, you'll have to go in the long queues at the airports that you used to point at people in them and laugh at them in the olden days. You know those ones, the really long ones that take ages that you used to breeze past and go, ha, look at you. Well, now that people is you. However, one actual good news is that duty-free to Europe is returning. So if you ever leave the queue, have the documents and your dog doesn't abandon you, then you can at least bring back loads of cheap booze if the pound hasn't plummeted to below the worth of gravel by that point. Hooray, endless basically free cigarettes that you won't be able to smoke anywhere, but that doesn't matter as hospitality will still be closed by coronavirus anyway. And hooray, the biggest Toblerones that you've ever seen that can maybe be used as a weapon to batter people away from the only loaf of bread left in Sainsbury's that now costs £400. 
If you're thinking of moving to the EU uh, from the UK, it'll depend on the country how it might work, unless you're going to Ireland, which should still be okay. But otherwise, it's going to be more paperwork than an origami master gets through in a year. If you're an EU citizen in the UK not from Ireland, then you're all okay until 30th of June 2021, after which you either have to apply to the EU settlement scheme or apply for British citizenship, or Pretty Patel will just turn up outside your house in one of those horrible union flag minis with a siren on the top and body press you out of there because she heard you say a word that she didn't recognise. Of course, if you're a foreign citizen that for some reason wants to move to the UK because, I don't know, maybe you're into aid work, then you'll have to pay for visas and health surcharges and it'll all be about how many points you get depending on how much you've donated to the Conservative Party that year or how many homes you bought Robert Jenrick. Trade is going to change big time because all imports and exports will now need new customs declarations and various products will need to be labelled different. How different? No one knows! There'll be a six-month delay on full controls on goods entering Britain from the EU, so that means businesses should know what they need to do when the government release the details exactly five months and 29 days from January the 1st. Things will be different for Northern Ireland and trade to Northern Ireland from Britain, but full guidance won't be published until just days before everyone needs it because being prepared is for cowards slash people who like to eat. The Internal Market Bill will supposedly make things easier, but it may also breach international law, still despite the government saying it would remove those bits before all the Conservative MPs voted for it not to. Sure, you might think none of that sounds great, or maybe you're too excited about buying massive Toblerones to think about any of it. There is a chance that absolutely none of it will affect you, but it will affect a lot of people who have to pay for more stuff or suddenly aren't sure if they can stay here in this country anymore. So please do look out for them. And let's be hopeful for a second. It is Christmas and all that. There is a chance that all of that could change and that other deals may come through or that after six months of a nationwide famine, we as an entire country descend on number 10 and just eat the Prime Minister while promising never to tell anyone about it and explaining to the EU that he's just mysteriously disappeared, which renders everything Johnson did and said null and void. Not that we can explain to them, obviously, as we won't be able to pop over to say anything after they build a wall in the middle of the channel as a response to the gunboat incident that happens in May. It's impossible to say until everything uh, occurs. Either you can prepare for all the outcomes or take the government's initiative and wait till five minutes before it happens and then think about doing something about it. Like, you know, buying a good book for the airport queue because, oh God, it's going to take a while. And now, back to Moya. That's, um, that was a great answer. I, I, yeah, I mute so many of my jokes now just because I can't deal with people not understanding it's a joke or giving me their own joke. It's, the, it, it's so petty, but it's like, no, I'll tweet it and then it's muted. It's, it's, my, it's a very old man view, but I, I still really wish that yeah, uh, we had to like write, write letters as replies because you'd start writing letters and go, dear so-and-so, I'm really angry. And then about halfway through, you go, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm going to give up. Oh. And it's, it's too quick, have, isn't it? Yeah, you know? I have tactics for it. It's too quick. It's like you've, I honestly, I have, thing is, I, I now maintain a private Twitter account, which is really locked down for doing that kind of stuff. Um, so if I'm like angry about something, I'll tweet on there and then I can delete it and no one's really seen it because I think we've, we're now at this stage where it's, I think it's silly to try and pretend that, you know, you can live without social media because a lot of people can't. We're all either addicted or it's become really useful for our work lives. There's various reasons why a lot of us won't log off permanently, but there's no reason why we can't create subspaces, you know, like breakout rooms or private Twitter accounts where we can funnel the sort of like anger we feel or the knee-jerk reactions and give us time to be considered in the public sphere. Because all it, all that's happened is with people reacting so quickly and so instinctively, uh, it just makes people drill down and double down on arguments that 
you know, damaging and harmful. And it makes sense. You see everyone else is the enemy. There's people who just reply to my tweets with something, just asking something. And I think, oh, why are you questioning me? It's like, well, of course they can question me. Yeah. Of course they can question me. It's in the public sphere. Yeah. They're allowed to question me. That's the problem is all these conversations that didn't need to be heard by everyone before can now be heard by everyone. And they didn't need to be. Um, I, I, one, of the, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show is because what you're brilliant at is you report um, sort of un- underreported stories and you look at underrepresented voices. Um, that's one of the things you sort of specialise in with your journalism. And I, I wondered if, you know, we've discussed already quite a lot of things that, that um, COVID has brought to the forefront this year. Has there, has there been any any group or any particular area that's been neglected in terms of support and media coverage in 2020 that you felt like we haven't heard about or it hasn't been highlighted because of this pandemic and, and, and it should have been? Oh, interesting. Um, I think the problem is that you don't hear about a lot of these people, so you can't actually pinpoint them. Um, I would say <laughs> it's like, yes, there there are. Like, I... I it, the thing is, when I always say underrepresented voices, I have a very clear idea of what that is. It's broad groups, but obviously within those groups, there are people who have, you know, more privileges and stuff. And I think I was, I heard Nadia Whittam is that Labour MP for Nottingham East, and she says something really interesting, which is that the key is not representation, it's liberation. And I always think about this when I'm talking about these underrepresented voices, because a lot of when I say underrepresented voices, I do mean people of colour, I mean people from low-income backgrounds, I mean, you know, trans individuals, I mean individuals from the other. But again, these groups both intersect, but there's also individuals in there who we hear a lot from, you know? So it's it's not a fixed thing. It's a it's a mutable contextual thing that changes. Um, but going back to the question about people who haven't been, I would say that it's people within, and this is very broad, so lots of regions outside of London. So I, I don't mean the Manchesters as much. I think we've heard a bit more from Manchester this year, which is great, um, although under sad circumstances. But I'm talking about, you know, these, these smaller towns and villages in like South Yorkshire, um or west yorkshire or you know up in newcastle and those areas and it's like what about everywhere in scotland apart from glasgow and edinburgh you know what about kilmarnock what about these places these are the places where we're not hearing from the residents and what i try and do is find the people who fit within the groups i'm talking about you know like i said again people of color who are living there because i grew up in herefordshire which is a tiny little county on the border of wales um there weren't that many brown people there um but it's also it's not just brown people because there's a lot of white individuals there white working class individuals or even middle class individuals you don't hear much from you don't hear about what life's like in rural communities in those kind of places you don't hear about what the experience has been under covid you don't hear about how it's hitting you know i'm sure you did because you talked to the um representative from the national farming council or something last week but in you know farmers like you don't hear what's going on and you know they're under double pressure because of this is what's coming with Brexit and the cutting of the subsidies, but also because of COVID and how things shut down. It's like these stories, there's so many to be told. You know, Cornwall right now is in tier one. It's one of the only places in tier one, but Cornwall's also, I think, one of the, there's areas in Cornwall which are some of the poorest in the country, these coastal areas. So it's like, these are the places I want to hear from. And I want to hear, because my specialty with Galdem is focusing on people of colour, both um, women of colour and non-binary people of colour, those are the people I look for the stories from. And I do think we need more, those are the voices that I want to hear more from. Um, and those of some of the, some of like in some places I said during COVID, you know, like in Manchester or that you, you get reporters who are interviewing in um, Muslim communities, particularly the Somali community because of the effect COVID has had. Um, but it would just be good to hear about everyone's day lives and what's going on and what they want and, you know, you, you've got things like, um, 
I think Labour actually sums up quite well at the moment what's going on there. They're having a lot of issues with what we call marginalised groups. So they have managed to annoy both the Jewish community, a lot of the Jewish community because of the anti-Semitism crisis, the Muslim community because of the Islamophobia crisis, and the black community who sit into both of those groups anyway, both Jewish and Muslim, but generally the black community because of the anti-black racism that's happening in Labour. So, but they, they've they boiled this all down to sort of like this big monolith of POC. And we refer to that as a blanket statement, but when I'm talking about these underrepresented, I'm trying to nail down to them. Like I'm trying to talk to, you know, the Sudanese community, the Somali communities, um, the black Jewish community. Those are the people that we, we've heard more from the black Jewish community this year because they sit in these two groups but I want to hear from them as sort of like 360 degree people and not just because their identities have come up as an issue on the news it's trying to make sure that the voices of these people out there as you know British citizens or um yeah British citizens or people who've like moved to Britain and become British citizens and what their lives are like as people the same way that you know white individuals are allowed to write about their lives as a whole thing I want to hear from people and I don't think we get this enough more than just like in COVID we've had it as like they're just writing about you know I'm black and Jewish and this is what the crisis has done to me or I'm Muslim and this is why COVID has really impacted my community and that's really important but I also want to hear about people who are just writing like if they happen to be part of the identity but they get to write about things outside like you know they might write about why Bradford's I don't know it's not the city of culture but imagine if it was right Bradford what's going on Bradford like politics in Bradford and not just from where their identity becomes the only reason we want to hear from them it's part of that but it makes up a whole person. And we stop seeing people in the complete vein of identity politics. I realize I'm on a tangent here, but this is very important to me. We stop seeing people just via identity politics because what we're now seeing is people like Priti Patel um, and Rish Sunak and Suella Braveman adopt that. And you and Kemi Baldlock adopt that and use that for their own ends to argue that racism isn't real. When it is, of course. But as soon as we start boiling people down to you are just this X, Y and Z, and see it as a label rather than part of a fully formed human being that makes up an important important intersectional identity um then we get into the danger zone um and then we start that's what i think about underrepresented as well i think where as soon as it becomes tokenistic rather than authentic um that's something that's when we don't hear from them enough because you only go to them when their issues come up in the news and if they're not coming up in the news much because they're not issues that are high on i know boris johnson's agenda you're not going to hear from them much. Um, so yeah, I hope that I hope that gives a bit of an overview into my actually. But I'd say overall, it's people within smaller towns, and not sound like Lisa Nandy, but smaller towns <laughs> and and regions um, that don't get the coverage. It's you know I, I want to be talking to people on the Isle of Man and everywhere around there. I need to be getting people in Sheffield. Sheffield's a massive city. You don't hear from Sheffield enough. What's going? Sheffield. You know, Sheffield was one of the earliest. Um, sanctuary cities for asylum seekers in 2007 Mm. i learned that the other day i never knew that and it's sheffield is the greenest city in europe apparently it's these kind of things it's like people it's realizing everyone else is is a main character in their own lives and it's not just london so i i I think that's that's what we're missing in covid i think there's been so much london centric focus and every time we've heard from the north it's been you know we're not getting enough they're like london's london's taking all the attention so even then it's still sort of london centric (laughs) 
That's really fascinating. I, it's, it's one of the things it's, it's, I've done uh, sort of gigs around the country for many, many years and you gig in all sorts of tiny little towns and villages and the amount of times you find people that are just, there are issues affecting their towns and villages that don't affect anywhere else. That, uh, you know, there's a particular factory that's closed down that's rendered everyone in that area unemployed. And, and you, you just uh, suddenly, it, it took me a long time. I think I'm a, I'm a North London boy. I've always grown up in North London. And uh, suddenly in my 20s, I started gigging everywhere and going, oh my God, there's all these places that have their own issues that I have never ever heard about and never get to see any coverage of um, and it, you know all those sort of things also made things like the Brexit vote a bit more understandable there were lots of things that suddenly opened up when you realise there are people shouting and complaining and wanting their lives to be better that are just they've been ignored for, for decades absolutely decades yeah it's, 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 it's ages um, it's also there's so, I mean there's so many threads to it it's like one they're shouting and complaining they want things to get better. Two, they're very proud of their communities in a lot of ways and they don't like being talked down to. So you've got to strike that right balance. You've got to recognise people's individuals. It's the same sort of thing with what happened in America. And, you know, they were very surprised, I think, um, by certain counties in Florida turning red. And it was the what they call the Hispanic vote. And they were like, why are they all voting for Trump? Um because the Hispanic vote is not just one monolith. It's made of very individual communities who all have their own individual sort of like attitudes, things and wants and needs and motivations. And what they thought Trump was doing was talking directly to them and actually recognise them individual level. And that's because Trump is incoherent. So you can read anything into what he says. But <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's this thing. And it's like you, you go around and you realise that it's not just, again, it's this, going back to this offering of hope. It's not just listening it's you're listening you've got to offer some hope I, I went you know, last year I was working a report which unfortunately never got finished because of I think budget and just time but I went up to a small uh, village I think it's south Yorkshire I might be wrong it's Yorkshire though um called Stainland um and it's up it's a tiny little village it's proper like in the hills beautiful and they had a real big problem with um what they called youth antisocial behavior it was getting quite bad there were the kids like making flamethrowers they kept their residents were leaving the village because of it and just going up and talking to them it was this picture of this village which they were really proud of it and it was sort of, and they had their own like political fault lines there it was I think their councillor was um was Lib Dem but the villagers loved him he was really good for the village and it's this kind of thing where you realize so divorced from what was going on in my life in terms of politics because I was just focused on labour 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 and I was like yeah labour at the time but it was they they the, the story was basically that they hadn't got anything, the kids hadn't got anything to do. There was no money coming to the village. All like the industries are sort of like shutting down around it. And also there was access. So now because of like apps and phone stuff, they could access narcotics and substances and get them delivered to them from nearby leads, but they hadn't got anything else to do. There was nothing else to do for them. So they were just running around, the, they couldn't, they weren't exactly leaving the village because of, you know, buses or whatever, but they could just get this stuff in and just like get high and mess around um and it was also but they had no they had no prospects to put in an old-timey way they had no prospects there was nothing really there were a lot of them were kids who'd been suspended and their parents um were low-income families living on you know a nearby estate and it's not cliche it's it's that people get trapped into these cycles of deprivation and of course they're going to start like acting out and doing because there's nothing else get bored as i'm sure a lot of people have realized this year bored and also there's nothing else to do you start just like destructing um and i don't think people understand that but it's going to this village it's like this microcosm of things that are happening all over and it's like these stories are ones that 
I just wish I could tell all of them. I can't also because I shouldn't be the only person like writing about this. It's like I try and buoy up young voices from these areas so that they can tell their own stories. But there's not space to, but it's trying to find, you know, trying to, it's stories like that. It's like you want to get those out there and you want to make people realise there's a world outside. And I think living in London, sometimes I feel guilty almost, like, because it's, 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 it's not easier here because it's very expensive and you know you but you're you can be insulated maybe because London is about like five cities just stuck into one so there's all that there's like 10 times as much um going on you're focused on that but you do I do I have seen like some of my peers who live in London react host very in hostile ways to the suggestion that perhaps you know the north is being ignored or the midlands are being ignored and it's like well I come from the midlands and it is being ignored it is that's like the that's the long and short of it and yeah these 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 areas they've had decades of systemic deprivation and the councils which are not nearly as concerned with parliamentary politics in the sense that you know you can have councils that are made up of Tory councils or Lib Dem councils or Labour councils and they won't reflect the makeup of um the main parliamentary parties in the same way because these are local politics these are people who you know they're elected because they know the local people and they might not necessarily even be good politicians in some cases but they know the local people and that's that's sort of like the thing that goes on um and these councils have been stripped of funding and but also they're now having to do this horrible thing and i'm not i don't want to make the councils seem like they're blameless because they also you know there are some terrible local councils out there but these councils you know they're having to sort of make deals with the devil in terms of like like capitalist um, projects like you know big fancy house residential developments that aren't going to benefit residents who actually live there already or you know big shiny new um, buildings that are not going to actually give jobs to people around there because it's a quick influx of cash when they've got none to do anything with and there's no way to rejuvenate these areas because they've just had more council funding stripped and now you're starting to see these first councils going bankrupt because they've either made what they call unwise investments. But I, I have to question, are they unwise or they investments that they really have just been pushed to the edge and they've got nothing else they think they can do? Um, and it's it's like, this is all again why we need these left-wing ideas because the Tories have said time and time again, they're not going to fund these councils. They're going to keep doing things like pretending they're investing in them, you know, taking away 80 billion or whatever it was with one hand and then giving them 1 million in return and being like, oh, look at this new investment of money while we've, you know, put this behind our back and taken this other funding away. And they're going to keep handing out money to councils that benefit them. I think we saw it with Robert Jenrick, where there was lots of allegations. Um, no, they weren't just allegations. They were true because they, they were true. That he, he gave a load of funding to, he got a load of funding for his constituency and the local councils there when his town had been like 170th on the list for most deprived towns for this fund. And he it was suggested he'd done a deal with the guy who was awarding funding. So he and another Tory MP nominated each other's sort of constituencies to get funding from this most deprived towns fund, even though they were way down on the list. And it's things like that. It's the most deprived towns are not getting this funding, but the weirdly, the places where there's Tory MPs up for election are, how strange. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, the, the, they're taking money away from the top. These councils have got nothing to do they can't rejuvenate the areas the people just have to sort of like struggle on their own and yeah these are the stories i want telling but i also and i think this is so important we have to focus on some of the light bits as well because there are beautiful thriving communities that are surviving regardless but they are surviving against the odds and that is what's important it's against the odds and they we do need to help them for it's too late or we're going to lose them and this is the thing that like when you talk about british values it's these small communities um that they are getting more multicultural as well you know i 
when I went back to Hereford, there are more, way more brown faces. It's amazing. But it's these small communities that need their stories telling. And you need to really, they're there. What is the British idea that when they talk about these values, it's like, it's these, it's these little communities in rural England, Wales, Scotland. You see, it's these little towns. It's this little community spirit. It's where people bond together. And these big cities are great, but they've sucked up the funding for far too long. Okay, we talked about hope quite a bit and how desperately we need it. Um, are you hopeful about next year? Um, and uh, with that question, what should we fo- be focusing on? What should we be putting our efforts into campaigning or otherwise for next year? Apart from going clubbing at every possible opportunity, obviously. Um, you know, what? Uh, what's your kind of drive for, for 2021? Uh, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful because I I think, despite everything I've said, uh, people now when they get out and about they might go with a renewed sense of hang on there's all these things you know there's these things I need to focus on there's these social issues and they're not going to go away I think people maybe COVID has made them realise that things just don't go away easily um, and they keep coming back again and again and again um, I would say the things that I want to focus on most of all I think well the things that I think why decide to focus on I think we should get grassroots we need to start at the bottom that's something that the 2019 election really taught me as well that grassroots activism is where it starts how can you expect communities to vote for you if you haven't been on the ground doing the work originally and i know there's so many actors out there who just what happens in parliament is of no concern to them because it doesn't materially at the moment affect the communities they're not getting funding either way so they're just kind of like we've got to do this on our on our own it doesn't matter who's in government because it's not making the material difference as activists and organizers and you know just general lay people like me um i think we should be getting more involved in our communities i think we should be getting to know both our neighbors and also the projects around us and if you have the capability you know help out if you don't donate if you can't do any of those just sit there and listen like sometimes we don't have spare money and sometimes we don't have time and that is fine you just knowing what's going on is good so i think mutual aid groups have have provided a framework for that and that you can just log onto those and see what people are talking about and see what's going on so that's useful um so yeah i would say we need to get back to basics we need to focus on how we can sort of build stronger communities and make those links because once you build a strong communities you have that collective voice where you can start campaigning for things and act, doing stuff but no one's going to do that unless they have the motivation why is you know me just walking into my local Lambeth meeting game. We need to do this because I say so. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on Twitter. They're not going to listen to you because you they don't know you. You're just an interloper. Um, so yeah, community stuff. Um, get outside your bubble if you can. Go travel a bit, I'd say, once coronavirus has lifted. Go and see other communities as well. Like one of my goals for 2020, which is hilarious now in, in retrospect, was I want to visit areas of the UK I've never been to before at least I think five I had on there Liverpool was one I've never been to Liverpool sadly obviously I now not been to Liverpool still but for 2021 that's awesome I think I want to go out there and I want to stay there you know and just see people and stay in smaller places and try and give both a bit of like immediate cash but mainly also just get a feel for some places outside of London and remember there's a world like I don't think you can talk about the transport system in Manchester for example with disdain if you haven't experienced like not was the same like i don't think you can tell people in manchester they can't complain about the transport system they have there unless you've personally experienced it so because i see a lot of like people being like uh actually manchester's very well connected well yeah it is and it isn't it's very hard to get to some places there and you know the buses stop running at certain times you need to 
don't talk about things you don't know is what I'm trying to say um yeah so I say grassroots activism that's that's the main thing on the agenda and if it has an environmental bent even better because that's something I'm very like clueless about and realize we need to do more than anything because none of this is going to matter in 20 years if the planet doesn't exist yeah that's a very good point isn't it It won't be able to travel anywhere if there's nowhere (laughs) to travel to um that is a big issue um and thank you again for doing this it's been fascinating chatting to you and and i just wonder with the the last thing which is that i ask every single guest on this podcast with the hope that we're just further good information in this world of so much crap information um is that uh, apart from yourself and galdem uh, obviously who else uh, would you recommend that listeners follow and and read or listen to for political opinion and commentary but anything like that really who are the people that you go to for information and insight oh um this is interesting because i do get a lot of it from twitter which is hilarious i <laughs> I wouldn't say like, okay, so there's the specific groups I follow, which is like, you know, the Northern Police Monitoring Project. I think they're really good. Um, things like Neon. But also I've a trick I would say, because I don't want to just make people follow individuals they might not, is I would say go to a local organizer. So this is something I like to do. Go to a local sort of organizing page, say like, I don't know, in Hackney it might be Sister Space or something like that. And sometimes I just go down their followers and I'll just like look for individual people and they were, and I'll make sure they're not a journalist and they're nothing like that. And they're just all new people just tweeting about things and I'll follow them because I think that's where you're going to get the most insight. There is actually someone that I follow who he's from Wales and used to be a raver and his name is Carlos Manueli on Twitter at Carlos Manueli. And I love following this man. Um, because I don't know it's just he's he makes videos and stuff but he's always always those great rave recollections but it's it's he's also on the ground it's like just follow ordinary people um I think also if I'm gonna give a shout out to specific campaigns um excluded UK I, I follow them at the moment because they represent three million three million people who are excluded by the furlough scheme and I think it's really important to remember them they've come so far I've so when they started up, um, I interviewed one of the people who's inv- involved in the founding of it at the very beginning. They still haven't got the money, but they've they've turned into a massive NGO slash grassroots campaign that's managed to get in Parliament quite a lot. They won uh, Good Morning Britain the other day. They're doing really good work. Um, I mean, follow things like um, the I like Black Lives Matter Wales. I think they're really important. It's it's about places that you know things that about campaigns that are involved in regions where you're not usually looking at it like the kids kids of color project in manchester is really good as well they're focused on um what's it it's teaching kids about institutionalized racism but also how to like love themselves of kids of color um so things like that which are quite hyper specific and local um those but I think ordinary people is what I've mainly saying I don't want to shout ordinary people out because I don't want to put on blast on a podcast <laughs> and then be like why have I got these but I try and look for individuals who you know might be following some of these campaigns who usually mean they're quite like left and stuff but also just people on the ground who are not not um prominent figures in public life because they're the ones whose voices do really matter most at the moment they're like you know them, they're my family, they're the people you live next to, they're your friends, though. You know, you get people journalists like me, you get a bit of a big head and we're like, oh yeah, the world was on it. It really doesn't. We're just very small representatives of a very small opinion. Um, and the sooner we remember that everyone else is the main character too, the better. 
How great was that? Yes, exactly. Super great. Um, thank you so much to Moya for that fascinating chat. You can find her on Twitter at McLean, and her website is moyalothianmclean.co.uk. Uh, she is, of course, the politics editor at the brilliant Galdem magazine, which you can find at gal-dem.com or on all those social media places. And that is it for this year. Um, But even though I've asked Father Christmas for a bit of a breather next year, it seems political issues are still going to be happening in 2021, which is disgraceful, really. Uh, Very inconsiderate. So uh, with that in mind, what do I need to cover on this show apart from all Brexit and COVID stories with a big rug and hope no one asks what the horrible bump in the floor is all about? Let me know issues, ideas, campaigns, angles, spangles and bangles to talk to people about next year, as well as just who the people be to ask the things to. And of course, you can drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or write a letter to Father Christmas at the North Pole and ask him to deliver me your suggestion for Christmas and watch as I see your suggestion land in my stocking instead of alcohol or something soundproof that I can wrap around my head and hide in for six months. As I disappointingly see that thanks to you, I haven't even got a satsuma, I shall lob your suggestion into the fire while doing festive swears like seasons wankings or piss on earth. Ha, I joke, I don't have a fire. I live in a small flat. I'll have to eat your suggestion instead. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? and that's all for this week's and in fact uh, 2020's partly political broadcast podcast Uh, as this year's war on Christmas has been largely hidden by a war on coronavirus and seemingly a war on fish I thought it was a shame that we haven't had the usual shit from some idiot claiming that heathens are trying to cancel the festive season even if coronavirus means this year it would actually be really sensible for at least one person to have suggested it so for the final Papa Bro Hot Pole Goss Fact of 2020 when did complaints about people trying to cancel Christmas actually start. Well, no, it wasn't the early 2000s when US political commentators insisted the term Christmas was being censored as they said it on every single public platform available and everyone heard them say it and no one stopped them. But it was around that time that public opinion in the US was that using the term holidays instead of Christmas was political correctness gone mad, though that is probably just because due to demolition of workers' rights and unions, no one in the US is actually allowed to book time off work regardless of the season, so saying that would have been factually incorrect. No, it wasn't in 1998 in Birmingham when the City Council used the term Winterval for a whole load of seasonal events that covered Christmas but also Diwali, Hanukkah, New Year's Eve, Chinese New Year and more. So of course they got many complaints that they were trying to cancel Christmas. Even though it said Christmas on all promotional material for the event on loads of posters in all the brochures and on the website. Makes you wonder if some people just start saying it's Christmas as soon as the weather gets cold and refuse to let the Liberals win by celebrating it relentlessly until the summer solstice. The earliest, uh, though, was in 1957 when the Church League of America, of which I understand the Zack Snyder's director's cut is better, complained that using the term Xmas was a blasphemous emission of Christ's name, as X is symbolic of an unknown quantity. Doesn't that just make Jesus even more mysterious, though? I mean, he's an unknown quantity. Who knows how tall he is, how wide, or what dance moves he could bust? Also, if Christmas is of an unknown quantity, doesn't that mean that wizards' wishes of having Christmas every day could indeed be a possibility? Anyway, uh, they were idiots, as X has been used as an abbreviation for Christ and a symbol of the cross throughout history, as well as the X-Men, who could do miraculous things akin to Jesus, which means he could have been a mutant. And, of course, X marks where pirates find booty, and Jesus rode an ass to Jerusalem, so he's clearly into that as well. That was this week's festive Pop Bro Hot Bogus Fact. And will there be more in the new year or will I have finally thought of a better and less research heavy way to end each and every episode? 
Who knows? Not me, that's for sure. Not me about anything, about anything that ever happens. But if you enjoyed it, or at the very least didn't hate it with every inch of your being, then please do tell all your pals, gals and local canals to like and subscribe. Give the show a lovely five-star review with some nice comments on whichever podcast app you use. And if you can, please donate to the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter pages. Merry, merry thankings to Acast, my brother, last skeptic, Cat Day, and Katie Coxall for all their help over the past year. And this will be back in 2021, where everything will be the same, but we won't be able to blame 2020 for it anymore. Have as lovely a Christmas as is possible this year, and here is to next year being, oh god, at least a bit less of a total dick. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by the Save the Fish campaign. We're so worried about all the fish that we believe the only way to save them is by arming each and every fish individually with its own massive fish gun. What can four gunboats do? Nothing. What can a school of herring each with an automatic weapon do? Well, not much. They don't have fingers, but they'd look pretty scary and I reckon that might work. Take that, French fishermen. Save the fish. Arm the fish. Maybe also give fish arms. Then give them guns that they can use due to the new arms. And then let the fish rule. Rule fish, Tanya! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.